You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. For I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, and that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, but or just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that, has, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, this was, I believe, Christmas of, of 98. Uh, I was driving from southeast Missouri, where I am from, to central Missouri, where the girl that I was dating, my future wife, Holly, lived in Versailles, Missouri. And I had taken this trip quite a bit over uh, our, our dating time. And, and honestly, I just remember from, from driving from Jackson to Versailles that day, I was like, this is getting old. I just want to be with Holly. Like, I don't want to have to drive this year for the holidays. I just want to be with her for the holidays. And something began to kind of well up in me. I realized that what I was feeling was I wanted to marry Holly. And I made a decision really just within a day that when I got to Versailles, at some point, I was going to pop the question. Now, you have seen the movies, you have seen all of the Instagram posts of all the amazing, you know, like, will you marry me stuff. I'm just telling you, that was not what I did. My family is laughing because they know what's coming next. I remember um, just we were hanging out that evening watching a movie and I was pretty exhausted. I was pretty tired and I was laying on Holly's lap. And I realized this was the moment. Like, I, I couldn't get away from the fact that I didn't want to drive anymore to visit Holly. I wanted to be with her for all the holidays. And so I popped the question sitting on Holly's lap. 
Now, I don't tell you that story because of that, but what happened next? And this is true for any of you here tonight that are married. What happens next? You, you know, there's a ring, and, and then what happens after that? You are engaged, right? What does it mean to be engaged? Well, what it meant for me to be engaged with Holly was that I was committed to her. I was committed to her, particularly in this period of planning and preparing for the actual wedding ceremony and, and, and actually all that was beyond that, a, a lifetime. And that's something that has taken up until this moment uh, to really understand because actually what's interesting is that my commitment to Holly, my engagement to her did not end when we got married, right? It actually deepened, and every day and every month and year that we've been married, our engagement, our commitment to one another, we was just grown deeper, but, but we have moved more deeply into being engaged with one another. What does it mean to be engaged? It means to be committed. It means to move into deep relationship with one another. It means to be intentional. It means to be thoughtful, Right? For the past few weeks, we have been in a series called Next, looking at the future of Mercy View. And what we're doing in this series is taking a look uh, at really what we pray the Lord will give us the privilege of doing over the next decade and beyond. If, if you don't know, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary as a church this year. We've made it to number 10, and uh, we pray the Lord would give us many, many more years here in the city. And as a way to kind of think about what this means in year 10, we thought we would take a moment to, to re-visit re and, and, and even uh, cast some vision for what we believe the Lord is doing among us. And so we have done a few things over the last few weeks to do that. We've talked about the value of mission. We said that we want to be a church that plants churches, that plants churches. It's a big vision of ours. We said really the, the micro or the, the, the way that that works itself out, out on the ground here at Mercy View is through the leading edge of mission that we would consider that to be discipleship and evangelism. We said the inseparable partners to discipleship and evangelism are mercy and justice. And last week, Ryan gave an amazing message on the importance of, it's something again, we said this is not necessarily, you're going to hear a lot of new stuff in this series. It's hopefully something that we've done well. And I believe we have, but we're going to continue to be committed to. He talked about the importance of community, being together, being committed to one another, being uh, two being better than one, right? And so we are committed to that as we continue to move forward. So we have two weeks left in this series. And here's what I want to do the last two weeks. Tonight, I want to talk about what it means for you and I to be salt and light, not necessarily in-house, but out there. Now, mission, the things that we talked about in the first few weeks have to do with that, right? We do mission out there. But in particular, I want to talk tonight about what it means for you and I to engage culture well. What does it mean to engage culture? Is there a way that Christians are called to do that? And then next week, I want us to come back really to a, a, an idea that we have, it's been woven through everything that we've talked about, and I want to talk about the importance of the local church and why we're committed to that. So um, if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to John <clears throat> chapter 17. That's where we're going to be uh, this evening. And um, 
As you might have noticed, as Ryan was reading this passage, you might have been thinking, who, who was talking? Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that's talking in our passage tonight. And, and actually, what's pretty amazing about this is that we are getting an opportunity to see Jesus do something um, that uh, maybe you've not thought of it this way, but I, I wonder, like, have you ever thought, man, I'd really love to know how Jesus prays? I would love to know how Jesus prays. Well, in John 17, you have something called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and that is exactly what you see there. It's uh, the longest prayer recorded in the, in the New Testament for us of, of Jesus praying. And this prayer that you're hearing in this, in this chapter is coming at the very end of the life of Jesus He's coming to the very end of, of, of his earthly life, and what you're hearing in this prayer, in many ways, are his last words, right? What, what are the things that, that you hear from people who know that they are passing from this life to the next? What, do, what are the things that they want to pass on to you? They want to pass on the things to you that are most important to them, and that's what we see Jesus doing here. We're getting a window into what Jesus is passionate about, what he wants to leave his disciples with, and ultimately what he wants to leave us with. And I really think part of what we can see in this prayer is a way for you and I to think about our both individual and collective witness as a church, or we could just say it this way, the way that you and I and as a church are to engage culture. So look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 10. Jesus begins by saying that all of of his children are in his spiritual family and that God's spiritual family and that his spiritual family are the same because Jesus is God, right? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit, one God, three persons. Jesus is saying, look, all that are God the Father's are mine, and they are the Spirit's. And he says that Jesus is glorified in his children and his spiritual family. When God saves us, if you're a Christian here tonight, when God saves you through the redemptive work of Jesus... Jesus is saying the glory of God then shines in and through you. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that when we look at Jesus, we see the glory of God. And God has shown that when we, I'm sorry, God has shown the light of his glory into our hearts. So for Christians, we have this amazing privilege to shine forth the glory of Jesus in our lives. Now look with me, if you would, at verse 11. Jesus goes on to say, let me just read this again. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now don't miss this. This begins to get to our first big idea tonight. Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. He is coming to the end of his earthly life and ministry, and he knows that soon he will be leaving this world and re-entering eternity. But notice how Jesus describes himself. In saying he is no longer going to be in the world, he is saying he was in the world, right? But then look down at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what is Jesus saying here? 
Notice in verse 11, Jesus says that he was in the world. And then in verse 14, he says that he was not of the world. He then says the same thing about his spiritual children. Christians, you and I, we are in the world, but not of the world. So here's what Jesus is saying. There is a way to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus was in the world, right? You look at the life of Jesus in the New Testament. He didn't run away from people. He didn't run away from society. He didn't separate himself from culture. Or we could say it this way, Jesus was cultural. He became a man. He spoke Aramaic. He went to Jewish temples. He drank wine. He wore sandals. He grew a beard. In becoming man, Jesus was cultural. But all the while, Jesus was not of the world. He wasn't swept away by society's idols. He lived in a way that his witness would not be obscured. He was distinct from the culture while still being in it. And that really brings me to the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. Cultural engagement requires faithful presence. Cultural engagement requires faithful presence. Actually, first heard this term, faithful presence, from a book I read a few years ago by a a sociologist who was a Christian man and wrote a book called To Change the World. And in this book, he made an argument for the way that you and I are to engage culture. And he says that in the places that we work, in the places that we live and play, we are to be both faithful, which is, is to mean we are to be distinctive, we are to be peculiar, we are to be uncommon. There's a sense in which we're to, to live counterculturally. And then also, though, to be present, which is to do all of those things that we just said while embedded in the places we work and live and play. In other words, we don't, as Christians, retreat from culture into communes or or monasteries or Christian subcultures, but rather in the places we live, work, and, and play, we conduct ourselves in such a way, just as Jesus did, that is uniquely counter-cultural, a, w- a way that points to a, a something beyond us, the kingdom of God, really, something t- to the effect of pointing to the gospel, ultimately pointing to God himself. And I just want to say real quick, when we talk about those, those spheres where we live, work, and play, let me just say a word about the places where we live. Um, I have tended to, when we've talked about those places, and we've talked about mission, to talk about your neighbors. And I, I don't want to miss that tonight. That is where you, you live in a neighborhood, and your neighbors are your mission field. But I just want to encourage you here tonight, if you're a, a mother at home, one of the ways that you help engage culture is by raising faithful children who are able to engage culture in the future, all right? So um, one of the ways that that plays itself out in in our home, I see Holly do this a lot, is she's engaging culture by helping our kiddos engage culture, right? It's it's, it's a, a legacy for the future. And so I just want to encourage you here, if you're a mom tonight, you hear me say, we're talking about mission. Uh, sometimes you're like, look, I'm at home a lot, and I get that. Let me just encourage you. The Lord is using you in a powerful way there 
to love on and serve your kids for the ways in which they're going to not only engage culture, but impact culture in the future. Here's what Leslie Newbegin, the great missiologist, once said. He said, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. That's it. That's what we're talking about right here. So really the question for us is, how do we do this? How do we uh, engage culture in such a way that we would have faithful presence in the places we live, work, and play? So let's just break that down. Let's talk about faithfulness first. What does it mean to be faithful? I just want to mention a couple things. First, it means that you are thoughtful in your engagement. Thoughtful. Whatever it is that you're engaging with culturally, um, you really have three choices. You can either reject it entirely, you know that there's nothing good about it, uh, or you can choose to receive it as it points to truth or beauty in the world in, in some way, or it might be an opportunity for you to point to the redemption that we and all things have in Jesus. So those are the three options, either reject, receive, or redeem. Now, being faithful means that as we do those things, we're not, we're not talking about being uh, pacifists or, or what some would call quietists, which is a way of, of, of saying that we don't engage in an intentional way. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. But I, I want to maybe more say it this way, because this is the way that I think um, some struggle uh, in the Christian subculture. It also doesn't mean that you should always be taking on the mantle of being a culture warrior, particularly online. Sometimes we must contend for the truth. Jude tells us that, the book of Jude, yes. But our primary posture as those who would have faithful presence in the culture I believe has more to do, I heard Michael Reeves uh, say this recently, with lighting a candle over cursing the darkness. Don't miss this, guys. Remember the mo that most of the time, you're not engaging ideas, you're engaging people. And people are made in the image of God. It is never appropriate for us to claim that we love our neighbor without a real display of that love practically to them. So first, one of the ways that you're faithful is you're thoughtful in the way that you engage in culture. The second thing that I would say, another way that we are faithful is we are theological in our arguments or in our engagements. Jesus says it as much in verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the what? The truth. Your word is truth. Let me tell you, what I, I believe that that means. It means that you actually can't engage culture well unless you know the truth. And by the way, if you know the truth, you're a theologian. You might go, well, Brad, I've not read a systematic theology book. I, I don't care. If you know the truth, you've got theology. And I'm not saying that you've got to read 10 systematic theology books to become a the theologian or to engage culture. And, and I'm also not advocating the idea that God can't overcome our inadequacies when it comes to what we know and don't know theologically, but 
we do need to grow in our ability to understand what, what sin is, what the gospel is, and the character of God is. We need to have a basic understanding of those things, of the truths of the Bible. And so, if we will begin to work on that and, and have a basic understanding for that, the good news is, is that you can be a faithful engager of culture as a theologian, no matter who you're engaging with. And, and this is what really is helpful. I, I, I've seen um, and been in, in, you know, just uh, encouraged by um, folks that I've seen that have done this really well. When they began to um, really apply the gospel to their own lives, um, they make a habit of hearing both sides of an issue before they baptize their own opinion in it. Uh, they are, they're slow to speak. They're quick to, to listen. And so really... The, the, at the end of the day, for us to be a, a faithful, um, you know, cultural engager is we got to be in our Bibles. We've got to know our, our scriptures, and we got to know how to explain what sin is and what the gospel is and, and who God is. And it helps if you have time and capacity for this to read good books on, on this that focus on theology, but it's not, it's not like necessary, like really what we need is a healthy dose of the scriptures. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about how the scriptures bring flourishing and friendship with God. But if you have capacity for more learning, praise the Lord. I mean, we live in a time where resources to grow in these areas, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. If you have any um, questions about how to grow in these areas, please don't hesitate to let me know. I'd be honored to serve you. So to be faithful is to be thoughtful and to be theological. Now, what does it mean for us to be present, right? We said faithful presence. Well, first I'd like to suggest to you that it means to be local. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You ever been, you know, maybe you don't use a radio anymore. I don't know what you use to, to listen to music in your, in your vehicle. Um, I still have a radio and and uh, if I want to uh, find a specific station or I don't have any, I tell you where this comes into play when I'm away from Tulsa and I'm trying to find a radio station, um, I hit the seek button, right? And the seek button passes through all the, the stuff that is fuzzy and staticky and it gets to a, a good signal, right? Um, being local means that we are intentionally present in the spheres that God has placed us or sent us. It's not in the fuzz. It's not in the static. It's in a specific place, like that, that radio station that we get connected to on, on our dial. Being local means that you are intentionally present in those places. And that's what I think Jesus is talking about in verse 18. He says, as you have sent me into the world, God, so have I sent them into the world. Do you know the people in the places that you work, live, and play? Do you know their values? Do you know their hopes? Do you know their struggles? Do you know their idols? How would you know that? Jesus did. We see other examples. Paul in Acts 17, he walks around and, 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 and looks at the city he's in and, and notices the, the city's idols, and he's able to speak to those idols. Here's the reality, friends. There, there will be no uh, cultural engagement unless you are there, right? Unless you're hanging out, interacting with the world outside of the church, and it is tough to do that. 
It is tough. I was just having a conversation this week with a friend who is um, in, a, in a setting, has been in a setting over the last few weeks doing something that she really enjoys doing, but the environment is really difficult. There's a, there's a, a darkness and a, and a heaviness there. For her to be a witness there is really difficult. So I get it. It's tough. But listen, cultural eng- engagement requires us to be there. I think of, of my uh, barista buddies at the coffee shop, uh, Ben and, and Huck, so I've gotten to know, and I mentioned Adam earlier and, and another buddy named Leaf. Um, these, these are people who um, I would not know their names unless there was some level of intentionality in trying to get to know them. And so, friends, I, 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 I know some of you are introverted. Uh, I am. Some of you are, are really, you know, it's, it's hard maybe to, to reach out. But um, I want to encourage you, ask the Lord to help you to introduce yourself to your neighbors. Invite them over for a meal. Read the local paper just to get a sense of what's happening here in the city. Participate in local events. Be a regular at a local establishment. Let me just add this. I, I read this in the last couple of weeks. Uh, an, an author who um, I really appreciate, his name is Trevin Wax, and he recently said that one of the, the ways that we can push back against our lack of locality is to not get caught up in what are called distant dramas. That is good. In other words, if we know more about what is happening in the world, and it's not wrong to know some stuff, you know, in, that's happening in the world, but, or, or we know more stuff about what's happening in the larger evangelical subculture, here's what it can do. It can cheat our neighbors the people that we're close to because they are who we are called to engage with, to love, right? Too many of us are engaged in what Trevin calls distant dramas. It's good. So first way that we're present is we're local. The second thing I would just add to that is to say um, we need to be lucid, all right. Now you might hear that. There's another L word, so just hang with me. But uh, it, it doesn't mean that you know you you just are able to like make coherent sentences. It's more than that. All right. Engaging culture in this way means that you you are clear about what you believe in. That's what lucid means, right? So it's going to require deep courage and timely boldness. You will no doubt experience at times crippling fear. I remember the first time I was going to hang out with Adam. He said, look, I'm here almost all the time. Just text me. And if you see me, text me and, and I'll let you know, you know, we'll, we get together when I'm done with my phone call. And so I, saw, I, I walked in, I saw him and uh, um, I noticed he wasn't on the phone and I just went and got into my spot and I texted him and didn't hear anything from him. I mean, this guy's in the same spot that I'm in. 15 minutes passed, 30 minutes passed, 45. <laughs> At about the hour mark, he texted me and he said, uh, hey man, I'm really stacked up. I'm not gonna be able to meet today. Now, I believe that that was true, but you can imagine this is a moment where I'm like, man, I, I, I kind of was getting geared up, you know? Getting amped up to talk to him and begin to get to know him better, more than we had. And I began to experience what we're talking about right here. I began to think, well, maybe he doesn't wanna meet with me. Maybe he found out where, you know, maybe he went and listened to some of my sermons, right? Because he knew I was a pastor. Maybe he didn't like what he heard. You know? You're going to face that 
in your, uh, in your um, engagement with people. Um, but we have to find a way to rest in Jesus and push through that. Because to appropriately engage culture, we've got to talk with people, right? And one of the things that we learn as we do that is we learn the language that they use of the culture. Now, we don't learn it in a way that somehow we get subsumed by it or we somehow compromise the truth, but we're going to need to learn how to, what I would call, contextualize the gospel for people. We must explain ourselves well and the gospel in words that our culture can understand, again, without compromise. But many of us need to learn to rely less on talking points and canned presentations and more on connecting with people personally, particularly in this post-Christian culture. And I, I want to, I just want to um, encourage you that tools are good and, and man, I need them actually, particularly as a launch pad to have conversations. I would say, especially in moments where the Lord might provide an opportunity for you to lead someone to the Lord. Now, now God saves people, right? But the Lord can use you in that. And sometimes those tools are really helpful in those, those ways. But, man, are we really engaged with, with people in conversation at all? Where we even have an opportunity to either use a tool or to just, you know, talk with them about our own faith story. That's what's interesting about the conversation about cultural engagement. It presumes relationships. Do you have relationships with people? I know in my own life, and I think about this just in every area, I need to be a better question asker, right? Questions are a great way to learn about someone's story to then be able to learn how to contextualize the gospel for them. I would encourage you, there's a great book called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. Um, does a great job of talking about how to do that well. That's something that you're interested in. Any of Keller's books um, that are more kind of apologetic, the reason for God or making sense of God are phenomenal. But guys, the, the two ideas here with presence that we're talking about is this. We've got to be... Uh, We've got to be local, and we've got to be lucid. So if you put all that together, that's what to me faithful presence means. Cultural engagement requires faithful presence. Now, if you would, look with me at the beginning of verse 20. Let me just read this real quickly. Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be what? One. Let me just stop there because he just repeats that theme a few more times here. And this really begins to get the second idea that I, I want us to see this evening. We just talked about really what happens with cultural engagement out there. But I want to just take a moment as we close tonight to turn the focus back in on ourselves a bit. We need to look inward. Look at verse 21, that they may all be what? One. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Do you see the theme? Yeah, the theme is oneness, right? Unity. The prayer of Jesus is that his spiritual family would be one. And where is that most profoundly represented? Again, we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but it's most profoundly represented in the local church. You and I, if you're a partner here at Mercy View, you make up this local church. You make up Mercy View. When we talk about cultural engagement here at Mercy View, this is um, an in-house 
aspect that we've got to chat about. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in many ways, if we don't figure this out, we can't do that out there. Leslie Newbegin, again, the great missiologist, he says it this way, how can this strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified Savior, of resurrection and new creation become credible for those whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can be satisfactorily explained and managed without the hypothesis of God. I know of only one clue to the answering of that question, only one real hermeneutic of the gospel, a congregation which believes it. So let's break that down. Jesus desires for his church, this church, to be one, to be united in love, and in doing so, it is the greatest apologetic, the greatest demonstration, the greatest picture of the gospel itself. Why? Because a church that doesn't believe in the gospel can't be united around it in love. And the gospel is what motivates us to love one another well in the church that works its way into uh, unity. In fact, not to do so um, shows the world that we aren't all we crack up to be. Have you ever wondered why the watching world calls, calls us hypocrites? I actually think reason number one on that list is what we're talking about right here. They don't look in at the church and see that we really love each other. And where does that come into play? Where is that really challenging for us? It comes into play when you and I disagree, right? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth and love to one another when we see a, a, a brother or sister who needs correction, we have a concern, but it means this. I, I know that it means this. For us to love one another well, to, to work towards unity, we have to do our best to strive in understanding with one another, take the log out of our eye, to extend grace where we can. And then, and if we fail, and by the way, you, you will fail, I have failed, we will all fail in this thing called relationship and community in the church, we say that we're sorry to one another. We say, will you forgive me? Here's how I was wrong. We reconcile, we move forward then by God's grace towards one another in, in unity. By the way, that's what Jesus does with you. When you fail him, he, he doesn't run away. He, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. He, he moves towards you. He pursues you. And Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves. But in doing so, he says, I, I'm extending mercy to you for you to make that right, right? And he reconciles us back to God. And this really brings us to the second thing and the last thing I want to invite you to see this evening. Cultural engagement requires a united church. So why is that powerful? Why does this assist us in cultural engagement if it has to do with what happens inside the church? Because when the church acts in this way, we become, as it says in 1 Peter 2, a peculiar people. Actually, 1 Peter 2 says it this way, that we are a people for his own possession. But that's what that means. If we're possessed by God, we are owned by God, he's our king, he's our Lord, we follow him, we become different. We become peculiar. 
We said this earlier about how we should be out there, but it's also true for us to be uh, that way in here as well. So the question is, is are we? Are we peculiar? Are we uncommon? Are we unusual? And I don't mean that in a weird way or an awkward way. To be weird and awkward, like that's not missional, okay? Here's Nubin again. We need to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So really the question for us tonight is, do we know the gospel? Have we experienced the grace of Jesus in our own lives? Really, it's in Jesus that we see the ultimate expression of someone who's engaged culture. We call it the incarnation. What did Jesus do in the incarnation? He left the perfect community of of his of God the Father and the Spirit, this, this beautiful, he was totally fulfilled. And he left it to come make his way into our mess to redeem us, to save us. And friends, that incarnation is not just a theological proposition. It's something that Jesus did for you. And so, honestly, if we can get our hearts and heads wrapped around what Jesus has done for us, it'll give us the courage to step out into culture and love well, to be a faithful presence there. Will you join us in the next decade and beyond doing that? Let's pray together.